Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for taking time to join today. My name is Laura Clark, and I'm a client advisor and client segment lead for public funds here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. It's been a tumultuous 2020 across asset classes, to say the least. We've also experienced significant moves within asset classes, i.e. at the factor level, that have impacted clients in varying ways. Some clients have looked to factors to take advantage of opportunities amid the fallout. Others see a factor lens as a way of better understanding risks in their portfolio, and still others are considering the role that factors can play as they really reevaluate the broader structure of their portfolio and determine the ideal mix of active and passive strategies. I'm excited to welcome our Quantitative Beta Solutions CIO, Yazir Mahi, Head of Fixed Income Research, Niels Schule, and Investment Specialist, Garrett Norman, to help address these topics across both equity and fixed income markets. We'll spend about 30 minutes discussing questions I have prepared. The recent value drawdown and prospects for value continue to be a focal point of client conversations. Yaz, I know you've articulated your view on value in the recent fact reviews and white papers, but what has happened in 2020? Sure. So, hi, everyone, first of all, and I hope you're keeping safe in this environment. I think it is worthwhile stating that this is the worst drawdown to value that we've seen in 30 years, right? But it's easy to get sucked into thinking in sector terms where value has actually been in a decade-long malaise. But when one talks about a factor drawdown, I think it's important to kind of step back and think about it within sectors as in within a sector basis and so it doesn't get muddied up with other risks. On this basis, value drawdown started in 2017. Now, that's still clearly lengthy. And given the size and the length of this drawdown, the question on everyone's mind, of course, is, is value broken? In other words, is this drawdown structural? So it's important to keep the tires on this and convince ourselves that this time is not different. Right? And the first and most common argument leveled against value in the recent drawdown has been that it doesn't take into account intangible assets. And on the face of it, that sounds like it might make sense. I mean, the current economy is all about tangible assets. And when one thinks about price to book, for example, I mean, book value is clearly about tangibles rather than intangibles. But in fact, if you look at PE, for example, or price to cash flow, those measures of value take into account intangibles and tangibles, and actually you find a drawdown almost identical. So even if one believes that PB may not be as relevant going forward because of the change in the economic makeup, it certainly isn't an argument against value more broadly. Others point to, for example, FANG stocks or tech or maybe the U.S. market or somehow that value has been a short disruption trade. Again, if you look across sectors, you look across regions, the value drawdown has actually been very, very broad-based. And on the short disruption argument, we looked at, for example, neutralizing value for R&D, and you see a very similar drawdown again. So again, it is much more of a broad-based phenomenon. And so the next question one might ask then is that, well, maybe it's simply fundamentally justified. What's interesting here is actually, if you look at the growth dispersion between growth and value companies, that's been narrowing. So in other words, people have been paying more and more for less and less growth in the growth stocks. In other words, they've been overpaying for growth. So I think that's the first thing that's really interesting because it highlights the fact that there is a bubble forming. The other point that's important to remember is clearly, I mean, interest rates is something that a lot of people would raise as a potential catalyst. And there are two aspects here. One is historically, 
one doesn't see a correlation between the value factor and interest rates. But in the current environment, we do believe the extended period of low rates has fueled the bubble in growth stocks. And you actually see that when you look at mid-cap companies in particular, you find that actually growth companies are carrying a lot more debt than value. And so the gap is unprecedented, right? Growth stocks are at a 40% premium to their average valuation, whereas value companies are at a 14% discount. So that gap has to close. Great. Thank you for your perspective. So coming back to your outlook, what would a catalyst for value look like? And should investors be trying to time a rebound? Yeah, so I think that's the million-dollar question, right? I mean, I briefly hinted at the leverage problem and how mid-cap in particular, but growth companies in general, do carry a lot more debt than value companies. So standing at the beginning of the year, I would have argued that a catalyst to a value rebound would be a market disruption. And fundamentally, because you'd have a market dislocation, results in credit impairment, and then that clearly would have a direct result in increasing financing costs for these leveraged growth companies. Investors then focus in on the fact that, I mean, that clearly hits the bottom line. They're then unable to grow themselves out of this debt, and you see a rebound in value versus growth. Now, clearly, the drawdown in March seemed to have accelerated previous trends rather than actually resulting in a turn to value. So the first question I ask myself is, was our thesis wrong, or is there something else at play? The first issue, of course, is that at the beginning of the drawdown, everyone is focused on bankruptcy risk rather than financing risk. At the front end of the debt count, their value companies actually carry more debt than growth companies, even though at the two-year point and overall growth companies have a lot more debt, right? So because the focus was on bankruptcy risk, it was actually the focus was on the front end, which hurt value companies. So then one would think that once things stabilize, one would have expected focus to shift to financing risk. But then what we had is central banks flooding the markets where the Fed even purchased high-yield ETFs to the tune of $3 billion in counting. And so in effect... What they've done is they've pushed out the day of reckoning. They've allowed these companies to be able to continue financing their debts at low rates. We still believe the thesis could be the catalyst, but I think what it does highlight is, I mean, we know that the gap is at unprecedented levels. It will inevitably turn. We believe it's cyclical, not structural. And when it eventually turns, it could be aggressive. But I think what it highlights is that factor timing is notoriously difficult. So while we know that you know, the gap has to turn, the question of when is a lot more difficult. Great. So in regards to diversification, what is your outlook for other factors? What about quality or what about minval? So quality is actually a very important factor to consider in the current environment. I mean, while he's actually done quite well and continues to do well, it essentially gives exposure to a more defensive core, right? And that has value in the portfolio. And I think some people, I mean, you mentioned minval, some people think of MinVol in the same light, but I just want to highlight that MinVol itself is actually currently expensive, while a more broad quality factor is not. But the other interesting thing about quality is actually the intersection between value and quality, and that's quite important because some growth companies may indeed grow themselves out of their debt. So adding a quality lens in there is important to differentiate those potentially can grow themselves out of their debt versus those that are actually taking on potentially unsustainable levels of debt. Great. Thank you, Yaz. I'm sure we'll come back to some of these topics, but Garrett, let's shift gears. And how are clients thinking about allocating to factors now? Sure. So I think we're seeing engagement in three main areas. The first relating to core exposures, the second to complementary roles that factors can play in a portfolio, 
and the third is around targeted exposures or targeted outcomes. So with regard to the first, the core role in a portfolio, I think you're seeing factors increasingly play that role sitting in between active and passive. We're all aware of the push towards lowering costs across investment plans and think that's somewhat inexorable in nature. I think on the other hand, there has been fear of how to generate returns that are going to meet plan needs or liability objectives, which, you know, at certain points of this year might have been less onerous, but as we're coming back to fuller valuations in equity markets, it's rearing its head again. So that's that one area of looking to factors sitting as that middle ground where they can enhance return versus market cap, but they're still able to provide exposure that's lower cost in nature than active, that has a liquid profile to it, and it's very transparent in nature. The second area that I mentioned was around completion opportunities. I think this one is particularly interesting as the technology around the factor investing ecosphere has evolved. So we and many others in the space have been running factor analyses for quite some time, trying to help clients identify biases they might have in their portfolio, right? So given current trends in the market, managers might be drifting more towards quality or growth stocks. And while this ability to analyze such a bias has existed now for a while, I think the way that we can all leverage technology and scalability in offering more bespoke factor solutions helps lead these to more meaningful engagement. In that case where there might be a growth bias, it's easier today to manufacture and deliver a targeted value exposure than it had been years prior. And then I think the last area comes back to the targeted exposures or targeted outcomes. We've seen, I guess, coming back to quality, which Yaz mentioned as helping give a more defensive core. We've seen quality serve as an interesting filter alongside yield in certain markets. So whether it's a dividend strategy or looking in at liquid real asset or infrastructure stocks, having a factor lens, so in this case, quality, has created an interesting return profile for certain clients. I think another area where you might mix different objectives would be the intersection between ESG and factor mandates, where you could think of ESG as in some ways playing another role similar to quality as a factor and just incorporating slightly more targeted exposure or more targeted outcome. Great. Thank you, Gary. Niels, we just heard the case for equity factors. Can similar concepts be applied in the credit space? And if so, how do you think about defining credit factors? Sure. So really, the principles that we see for equity factors, they carry over to the credit space. So what I mean by that, when we look at factors in the credit space, something like a value factor, a quality factor, momentum factor, they can be implemented in the credit space. However, the way you implement them is very different. So let me give you a couple of examples. Think about value. The principle of value is you look at how the market values a security relative to a fundamental anchor. If you think about equities, as Yas described earlier, your market value will be usually the equity price. However, their fundamental anchor is usually based on either a financial statement or balance sheet value. Think about the book value for equities. Now, for credit, the fundamental anchor is default risk. So it's one measure of default risk. It could be default probability. So for us, we have several measures. So for example, a Merton-type default probability. So you see the principle of comparing a market value to a fundamental anchor is the same. However, the way 
we actually implement it is very, very different. So value would be one of our factors. Other factors that we look at is quality. Quality is a factor. So quality is one of these factors which actually does not take any information from the securities itself into account. It's purely based on balance sheet or financial statement data as well as equity market information. So what it turns out that the characteristics are very similar to equity. So firms or companies with strong fundamentals tend to outperform in the risk-adjusted space. So this is quality is really a factor which works very well in the volatility dimension. So strong fundamentals often is associated with low risk. So quality works very well there. Finally, momentum is another factor we take a look at. And here we are also slightly different from equity. What we look at is we're looking at the, fund, the momentum within the credit market, but we also look at the momentum in the equity market. So what we find when we do our factors, there is a lot of information in other markets. So keep in mind, bonds are written on an issuer. The issuer often has equity outstanding. So we look at both how the recent equity performance of that issuer was, as well as how the performance in the credit market was, and we combine these two. And it turns out that strong recent performance tends to continue to have strong performance in the future. So you see the factors, the principles and the factors carry through. However, the way we look at them, the way we define them is quite different. So now we are not really reinventing the wheel here. So a lot of the variables we look at are very similar to what the fundamental credit analyst will look at. Once again, credit is anchored in default risk. So a lot of fundamental credit analysts, the way what they look at is different measures of anchoring credit risk or default risk. So some of the variables, we use something like, let's say, a debt-to-cash flow ratio or a debt-to-long-term earnings ratio. We use them in our sectors as well. The main difference between us and fundamental credit analysts is we have a very broad coverage. We do not concentrate on the biggest companies. We really cover the whole market. Second of all, we utilize a lot of out-of-market information, in particular equity market information. We let that flow into our fundamental anchor here. But the biggest difference between us, an active manager or fundamental analyst looks at this is really implementation step. When we implement our factors, we tend to neutralize with respect to other risk factors. So for example, we tend to not take positions or views on sectors or duration. We tend to be neutral relative to a benchmark. Moreover, we tend to be very well diversified. We don't tend to have concentrated positions. We have very tight issuer caps. Besides that, we in general do not work on single factors. So if you look at the three single factors, value, quality, and momentum, each of these can have prolonged periods of underperformance. And the three factors really play different roles throughout the credit cycle. So what we tend to focus on is a multi-factor approach where we combine the single factors into one multi-factor score. And the multi-factor approach tends to result in way more robust results in general and in particular through time. So that the periods of underperformance tend to be a lot shorter once you go for a multi-factor approach. Thanks, Niels. Factors and credit space are certainly very interesting. How come it's taken longer for credit factors to be established than their equity counterparts? Well, there's really three main reasons for that. First and foremost is data availability. Then second, it's relatively speaking a little more complex to implement factors in credit than in equities. And finally, the implementation itself, how do you actually build the portfolio is a bit more complex. But let me go through them point by point. Data availability is a big issue in credit. So for equities, equity markets tend to be traded on an exchange. 
so it's very easy to obtain the data. Credit markets tend to be traded OTC, so historically, the data availability was rather scarce. So other than index providers, there was no one-stop shop to really obtain all of the data. And this led to the result that academics did not really publish much research historically. A lot of the factors have been driven in equity markets by academic research historically. So this has just lagged for credit markets. So with the introduction of trades in the mid-2000s, this has slightly changed and you see more and more academic-style research supporting credit factors and coming out in the recent couple of years. Finally, even if you get the data for credit, just getting a price is not good enough. You need to have complex pricing models to obtain analytics, like think about spread durations, spreads, and so on and so on. You need a pricing model behind it to really get these analytics to do something meaningful with the data. Once again, in academics, this is a little harder to obtain, and the entry hurdle is just higher. Second point was slightly more elaborate to do credit factors than equity factors, and why is this? Well, if you think about equities, in general, for each balance sheet, you have one primary equity traded against the balance sheet. That's not the case for credit. So if you think about credit, there are numerous bonds written against the same balance sheet. In fact, there are numerous entities potentially backed up by the same balance sheet. So if you think about a large company, a large company often has entities under it, which each entity could issue debt. That debt can be then guaranteed by a credit parent by, so by, or an ultimate parent. This entity mapping is very complex. You have to map each bond to the balance sheet that eventually backs it. Finally, doing this right now is already hard enough. Doing this historically over the last 20 years to get a good backtest, to get comfort in your credit factors is very hard. So the entity mapping changes dynamically through time. To give you an example, in 2008, JP Morgan took over Bear Stearns. So from one day to the next day for equities, the equity of Bear Stearns ceased to exist. However, Bear Stearns had a lot of corporate bonds outstanding. These corporate bonds from one day to the next day were all of a sudden backed by the JP Morgan balance sheet. So if you do your back test, you really have to get this entity mapping, get it correct through time with all the corporate actions historically. So the entry hurdle to just get started for credit factors is a lot higher. Finally, the implementation. Even if you get your issuer scores and issuer factors, even then, the implementation is a little harder. If you take a look at, for example, J.P. Morgan in the U.S. Investment Grade Corporate Index, J.P. Morgan has many more bonds than 100 outstanding in the index. So which bond should you buy? For equities, it's quite easy. There is one equity outstanding. For J.P. Morgan, you have to take into account the whole term structure. Which duration profile do you want? Where do you want to sit in the capital structure? How senior or junior? So it's a little more complex. Second, liquidity. Credit markets tend to be a lot less liquid than equity markets. So you have to be able, especially for high-yield markets, you have to be able to source securities. Besides sourcing securities, the trading itself is more costly. So when you do your research, the implementation, so the liquidity trading cost, it has to be part of your research process. So it's just a little more complex. So what we do in our credit factor approach, what we do is we really focus on issuer selection. So by default, we will neutralize other risk factors such as duration. We'll be neutral to the duration of the benchmark index. We will be neutral to, for example, the sector of the benchmark index. So you see, it's similar to equities. It's just a little more complex. Great. Thank you. What is the outcome of a factor of investing in credit space? 
or what should clients expect in terms of value adds? So when we ran our back test, we really go back for two and a half, three credit cycles. So we go back into the late 90s with our back test. We see strong historical performance, both across time. We use the same factor definitions across different market segments. So in investment grade and high yield, we have the same factor definitions. We have the same factor definitions globally. So if you look at, say, the U.S. market versus the European market, we use the same factor definition. That gives us confidence that these factors are not so spurious or data mined. So historic performance is very strong. If you look at how these factors work, you, in general, either get the same return at significantly lower risk or you get slightly higher return and at the same time lower risk. In general, these factors tend to outperform the strongest performance relative to market cap-weighted benchmarks during times of market distress. So as soon as the dispersion in the market picks up, these factors tend to work a lot better and tend to outperform. In terms of diversification relative to other credit managers, we find that factors are diversifying to both pure passive managers as well as active managers. So when we looked into holdings of active managers, we found that they really do not have tilts towards factors on average. So adding a factor allocation is really diversifying to this. And if you think about what typically distinguishes us from active managers, we tend not to have directional bets. I already mentioned we do not tend to have bets in terms of duration or sector bets. When we looked at active measures, they often have uh, tilts toward credit. So either within the, let's say, an investment grade universe, within the universe, they tend to often tilt towards higher risk names or potentially higher yielding sectors. We found that some of the managers tend to go out of index to add alpha. So we tend to not do any of these. So we are purely issuer selection. So we try to align all of the general risk dimensions to the benchmark and our edge is really in the issuer selection. So it's really diversifying to both active and passive. If you think about this in a multi-asset portfolio context, if you think about what is the role of fixed income in a multi-asset portfolio? Well, if you look at the portfolio, equity on average drives both the expected return and in particular the risk of a multi-asset portfolio. So the role that fixed income is playing in this portfolio is really diversification. What makes factors really interesting, they tend to outperform in particular during periods of market distress. And one of the important things is we do not take directional bets. In particular, we do not add credit beta relative to a benchmark index on active managers. So no directional bets. So what happens here is essentially our correlation to equities is on average lower than in a pure passive index or an active manager. So really the diversification benefit in the multi-asset portfolio is really an important aspect that factors can add to multi-asset portfolio. Great. Thank you. How have things played out in 2020? So 2020 was interesting. And we really, when we look at 2020, we really can split 2020 into three sub-periods. We have the period up to March 20-ish, so around March 23rd. Then we have the period between March 23rd and, like, say, mid-April and after. So what happened on March 23rd? So on March 23rd, there were actually two announcements by the Fed. 
in 2020. We had the first announcement around March 23rd when they announced that they will purchase investment-grade corporate bonds. And we had a second announcement about two weeks later when they announced that they will also purchase and help the market in the foreign angel part of the market. So if you look at our performance, up to end of May, we are ahead of the market cap-weighted indices. We were significantly ahead of these indices in the first sub-period, up to March 23rd. So we had very strong performance, and in particular in the month of March, during the massive downturn, we started to significantly outperform the market cap-weighted indices, in particular in the drawdown, both for high yield and investment grade. Now, with the announcements from the Fed, the second phase started. So from late March to mid-April, the market started to rally. And this is a period where we, relatively speaking, underperformed the market cap-weighted benchmark. And it's really the market intervention by the Fed, the market started to trade away from the fundamentals. Once this calmed down and it was priced into the markets, in the third phase from mid-April to end of May, we started to outperform. Again, So over the whole period, we are outperforming, but there was an episode when right around the Fed announcements to intervene in a market where we slightly underperformed. So if you look at this at high yield, our max drawdown was significantly better than the market cap weighted index. For, let's say, our U.S. aggregate portfolio, the corporate piece in that, up to mid-late April, there were about 22 foreign angels here to date. Our factor approach in this particular example, we avoided all 22 foreign angels. So from the pure issuer selection, the factors delivered exactly what they were designed to deliver. Great. Thank you, Neil. Certainly appreciate hearing about fixed income factors and credit factors. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's discussion and found it helpful. If you'd be interested in reading more about the equity value factor, we'll be releasing a white paper next week. White papers are also available on factors in the credit space. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase and & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected. 
stored and processed by JP. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by JP Morgan Investment Management Inc. or JP Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc. Both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local JP Morgan entities as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, U.K., Limited which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave R.L., in Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia-Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets. Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, JP Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, JP Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.